Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Emmeline Duncan to the podcast today. Like her Ground Rules Mystery Series, Emmeline is based in Portland, Oregon. Her series includes 2021's Fresh Brood Murder, Double Shot Death, and Flat White Fatality, plus more to come. Emmeline also writes for teens as Kelly Garrett. Her debut YA novel, The Last to Die was an Oregon Book Awards finalist. She was also a 2020 Oregon Literary Fellow. When not writing, she spends her time seeking out new coffee shops and hiking trails to explore, frequently accompanied by her great Pyrenees sidekick. You can track her online at emmelineduncan.com. Emmeline, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I am delighted to have this conversation. You and I... um, frequently talk at conferences when we see each other, but I'm, I'm glad that we're going to be recording one of those conversations. I'm going to start this the way I always start um, these podcasts. Uh, when did you say to yourself, I want to write a novel? You know, that's an interesting question because I've really only ever wanted to be a writer. And I, mean, I say this as a joke, but I can argue, I mean, I actually won my first book related award or writing award at age eight. Um, I, in the third grade, I was chosen, like I entered a a very third grade, very much you could tell a third grader wrote a story that actually won like my grade level competition. And I actually went to a, um, a children's like writing workshop that was at a local community college, um, where we got to meet a real writer, you know, and, you know, and, and, and it's kind of fun because I grew up, um, a couple of years in, in Eastern Washington, but mostly in Oregon. And even as a um, like middle school, we went to a festival like for children and teens that where they bring students from all over Oregon. And so I've been lucky. I've been, the idea of being a writer has been swirling around in my brain forever. Um, as an undergraduate, I studied creative writing and political science, but it was probably about a decade ago that I got very serious about actually sitting down and writing a book that I I could be publishable. And that was at that quality versus just like, you know, starting short stories and maybe finishing them. And so I got very serious um, and I started out thinking I was going to write for teens. And so Mm -hmm. the first, the very first manuscript I finished was actually more of like a teen kind of fantasy mystery. And the second was also had like a fantasy mystery edge and then the third book, and it's the first, third manuscript I wrote, and it's the first I had published, was a YA, a YA thriller that was like not had no like fantasy elements at all, and it was reaction to um, comments in my first two manuscripts of my characters being too nice, and I was like, well, I'm going to try writing an anti-hero young adult thriller, and that was my first that was published, and while that was all going on, because the book queried really well, nothing was happening, I eventually sold it on my own. I decided I wanted to write my first manuscript or book for adults. And mm-hmm. it was really natural for me to write a very a cozy mystery that's had a similar, it's different than the one that eventually came out, but had a similar kind of like quote unquote millennial cozy vibe. 
And that was the book I signed with my agent on, although we sent that on on sub, it didn't sell. And the second cozy mystery that I wrote with my agent and that keeps it on sub is the one that sold. So lots to unpack there and we're going to figure that out. So let's start with the, you know, you wrote two books that you didn't, they taught you how to write a book. Um, And then, you know, your third book was the book that you said, okay, this one's ready to go out. As you're learning how to write a book, um, which is, you know, I think it's, it's a lot to figure that out when you're not just reading about writing a book, you're actually trying to get through it. Um, did you also take craft classes or how did you build the craft of writing? I mean, obviously you've been writing your whole life, but how did you build the craft? Um, I did take some like workshop sorts of things. Like one, I, I actually took it after I'd actually written the third manuscript. It took like a weekend long revision retreat with a Darcy Pattinson that was really useful. It was more of the children's lit side, but it was a really great kind of foundation on like, now you have a full manuscript. Like how do you, actually edit something of that length you know I took I went to like the Big Sur Children's Writing Workshop a couple times I did a lot of local like kind of like one day kind of classes um I went to Limit Writers I went to like SVWI's conference and I also just I read a lot um I I talked with a friend that had actually worked in the industry who recommended a couple craft books, which I found incredibly useful, like self-editing for fiction writers is really useful. Um, I picked it up by chance, a book that was like, thanks, but this is not for us. The somewhat gentle guide to getting, I'm sorry, completely mangling the title, like the somewhat gentle guide to having, just like handling rejection or something like that. And it was a fantastic book. I'm just like, what, when you, look at a book from like an acquiring editor's point of view what are the common mistakes people make oh and so I did a lot of reading I I checked out a lot of craft books from my library I bought the ones that I liked books that weren't speaking to me I just put down and just moved on to the next craft book and I got to know some local writers super helpful as well um and I love that the the comments you were getting from your beta readers was that you were your characters were too nice so that you decided to do the anti-hero and the darker thriller first of all YA is fascinating to me because there's such a wide range of of characters and protagonists and stories and mashups and and frequently I find that YA tends to tends to the dark um more easily <laughs> in some ways than than other other genres that get very specific because it's such a broad reach. But what did you learn by writing dark? What did you learn by by taking that advice and sort of diving deeper into a character? Well, it is kind of funny that, I mean, I, I did learn a lot, although the kind of hilarious thing is that I would say my subsequent books have had much nicer characters that aren't anti-heroes. But it was a really nice exper- experiment of what are the lines that people create with their characters like so cozy mysteries have a very some very specific lines that you don't cross right, right? your uh, main character is probably never going to be mean to a cat they might be completely rude to the neighborhood busybody but they're they're never gonna like make fun of someone's cat or their dog right there's certain levels of like violence that will never happen on the page and there's a you know and and you you might, and I would say, well, some cozies, as they don't necessarily acknowledge the darker side of life, some do, 
but that's definitely not where they dwell. And so it was interesting, right? A character that was like baking, breaking every boundary, you know, because I would think about, and it was a lot, this character, especially with, which she would say things she absolutely should not have said. And it was interesting figuring out like, what was the line even for that manuscript of too much, what needed mm-hmm. to come back to be completely unforgivable versus just unlikable. And I think, Thinking of books in that way, like what are the bounds that you are going to push and what are the bounds boundaries you'll know that you'll never cross is a really interesting thing to think about and can help. Because, you know, if you write a noir, there's still going to be lines you're probably not going to cross, right? Both. And it's, and you know, you, and you have like more flexibility than a cozy writer, but that is still something you should think about ultimately. Well, and one thing, um, um you that with your um ground rules mystery which is about somebody uh food trucks in portland and, and it's a it's a really wonderful series um and i um i think i moderated you and i were on a couple of panels together but i moderated the panel you were on so i i, I read the first one and then read the second one um and we talk about the tropes and you know what a cozy is but you because of um, the fi- family dynamics you've set up, some of the concerns you bring up. I'm not going to say it's a dark cozy because it's not, but there's a um, there's a realism. There's a, a a different level. I think sometimes cozies get dismissed as completely, you know, bubble worlds. But yours um, doesn't do that. Your series um, has complexities that um I think make it a richer cozy. How did you you know you how did you feel about that those tropes and how you were working with them? Well when I sat down to write the first ground rules mystery, I wanted to have a little bit more of that real world edge. And I, I do find it interesting. I think of it as like where the camera lens focuses. So I mentioned for example homelessness, like a teen character and you know that's homeless and there's d- different you know elements around that. And so like it's there, but instead of necessarily just focusing on the dark side, you know, I I also kind of focus on like, what are everyday ways people can help? That's why I worked in like a suspended Mm -hmm. coffee board, which is a real life program that started in in Italy where people can pre-buy food for someone like food or drinks in a cafe and someone who's down on their luck can just come in and claim them. And so I worked in things like that because that kind of brings that counterbalance of the kind of the cozy making, hopefully making the world a better place. But, you know, acknowledging that these are the real life situations everyone deals with. And I think it makes the mysteries a lot more interesting when it feels like, I mean, that you're highly unlikely that your Brista is going to go solve, you know, a murder mystery. But if she did, you know, what are the actual mysteries they would solve? And so those are all elements I thought of. And I think because I deal with the real world more than some cozies do, that's why I kind of get that millennial cozy tag. Mm-hmm. often of just having a world that feels more authentic but still has the tropes of a cozy mystery within like within the story kind of keeping you from the writer from going too dark but also from going giving it the real world part from getting a little bit too silly and even though I mean I love some of those books that have that incredibly silly bubble world it's fun writing within the confines of this could really happen but it's still a cozy mystery. Well, and I I think that the millennial uh, cozy tag is interesting because the um, they are working on building new 
readers and and it's working as far as as you know books with that tag and also other um opportunities for people to discover the genre because it is a genre that uh lends itself comfort um to a certain degree and to community and to you know escape <clears throat> and during these times that's a really beneficial thing um so let's talk about your writing process. Tell me a little bit about your process. How do you how do you write a book? Well, you know what I what I find interesting about this question and I think I think for aspiring writers this is something I would have wished I would have known is I found the writing process really changed going from aspiring to under contract. Yeah. The first couple of manuscripts I wrote, I would say one thing I've always hadn't realized. I I learned earlier that for me I needed to know where the story started. I needed to know where it ended. I needed to know the rationale for why did everything in the story happen? But I was probably, I was more, so I was kind of always somewhere between like pantser or plotter, you know, pantser being someone that writes by the seat of their pants and a plotter being someone with like a really heavy outline. I was always in the middle. But once I sold my first book and I had to start writing under, you know, contracts and deadlines, and also I had to write a synopsis that was turned into my publisher ahead of time for approval, I found myself shifting much more to the plotter side in a way that was, I had to figure out how to make that work for me because mm-hmm. I had put, I'd done a lot more pre-work. And so the thing that I find interesting is I probably do less revision and that's my it's probably a combination of the more having written more books but because I've done more pre-work my revisions are shorter but I find that some of the writing process goes a little slower when I was kind of being like oh what's going to happen and a lot more flexible and, and you know I would maybe kind of like write kind of furiously figuring the story out and now like I because I know where the story's story is going it's a much more sort of like slightly slower methodical and it maybe takes the same amount of time, but it's definitely a different feel. And so I think the one thing, and, and I definitely after when I was writing my very second like ground rules book, like I, I looked around and I really wish there were more talks about, oh, you have a book written. What's it like doing the shift from aspiring to actually writing under contract? Mm-hmm. Because I was, and for me, also, I was writing it right after the pandemic started. I couldn't go out to coffee shops. I couldn't go to my local shut up and write, which is a really effective way for me to get words down. And so I was both like, wow, this is a weird experience. And I'm stuck at home. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I think that that conversation is an interesting one. So let's have it briefly here. Because when you're writing a, a, a cozy series, where if you get a contract for any kind of series, but uh, <clears throat> you usually have two or three books on the contract, so that you you know you've got time to write that first book because you know it's that's just you know that's what gets you the contract or or you write a proposal and that gets you the contract. But there's sort of some breathing space. But after that, <laughs> you've got you know depending on the contract, nine months to a year to write that next book. And at the same time, your copy edits are coming in for your first book and, and you know, you're gearing up marketing and you've got to, you know, the balancing act and the juggling begins. So what about that process um, and that second book, which can be so challenging uh, for many writers, that sophomore book on a contract, it's like, all right, I did the first one. Can I, can I? pull it off a second time. What, what, what challenged you about that? 
Well, probably the one thing that I had going for me is that because it was the second book, I knew the characters. So there was less exploring on like what makes the character tick. But so, but then it was this shift of like, okay, so I know what makes her tick. Now, how do I make this book two an interesting story? You know, with the, and within the confines of the synopsis I'd already written. And it was also weird. I mean, just because I was writing it during the pandemic and I was writing about a music festival, which is very, it was a very strange feeling. Cause I'm like, well, no one's actually going out and seeing other people these days. So then it was like remembering what was it like to be in crowds of people. And it would, it would be interesting to me to talk to someone in say five years. Cause like when my book, Fresh Fruit Murder came out in uh, the spring of 2021. And so I feel very lucky that we were doing a lot more, like bookstores were doing really good Zoom events. Mm-hmm. You know, books that came out um, April of 2020, no one knew what was going on. We didn't know how long things were going to be shut down. You know, it was a very different feel. And by the time my book came out, we had a better sense that things were going to reopen. But bookstores had their, they were a lot of experience, you know, doing Zoom events. And people were still interested in going to Zoom events. And so I, it'd be really interesting for me to talk to someone whose book's gonna, whose debut is gonna come out in like five years, because how is the promotion gonna feel different to them, right? right. And social media has changed a lot, and it was definitely interesting getting, um, you know, like writing, and then it's it is like a shift where you're like, oh, now I have to do copy edits or final pass pages, which have a tighter deadline. But then if you're kind of creatively doing one thing, and then it's like kind of going back in the time for your character to like read the copy edits it is just a strange sort of feeling but I think it can also help as far as because you're like writing something else and you look at copy edits I think it's easy to be more kind of clinical because Mm -hmm. the story is less personal at that point because you've written something else and so it's easier to sort of be like okay my words aren't sacred how do I make this sound the best as possible for the reader and it's a little bit less personal than it I think is like when you finish that first like draft or two and you're like, no, this is special and it's great. <laughs> um, and the synopsis conversation uh, is one that I've had with a few writers, you know, different editors work differently. Um, but a synopsis, uh, when people ask for a synopsis, it's for many reasons. It's so that they can figure out, make sure that you, you've got the book in hand, but it's also starts the whole marketing cover design like it starts greasing those wheels so that you can't I mean you could but it's not suggested that you sort of oh you know what by the way the book's actually six months later and it's going to be you know (laughs) at Christmas instead um you know six months into it You, you you're already telling the publishing house what they can expect and where they can place it and everything else um so did you, how was that process for you as far as thinking through the synopsis and, and working on things? Well, it was it was funny when I originally sold the first Ground Rules book, we had some suggested books in the, the rest of the series. And then when I, I started writing a synopsis for one and I just, I wasn't feeling it. And actually the person that used to cut my hair was like, you should set, do a, do a Portland book based at like Pickathon, which is a local Yuko music festival. And I'm like, you know, a fictionalized version of that would be a much more interesting story. Mm-hmm. And so I completely scrapped. And this was like a month or two before the synopsis was due. I completely scrapped and I wrote like a new synopsis and it came out really relatively quickly. And I think I had it an afternoon and the story just sort of like fell into place. And one thing I think also helped is that I had already had a conversation with my editor who had said that 
it's okay if minor details of the synopsis change. Like if the if you change like who did it or like the why, like who the villain is, like right. it's like that's fine. As long as it still feels like the same story. If it's set at like, you know, a music festival in July, you can change minor details. You just can't change it into like a Santa Claus festival <laughs> at a tree farm in, you know, December. And so I was it was always been nice to know that like I can do minor changes as long as it feels like the same book. And so far, I mean, I've I've always gotten like the back cover copy, you know, sent to me for my my opinions. And they've actually taken all of my feedback, but I also have very specific feedback. I'm not saying like rewrite all of it. I'm like, like, oh, this like small detail is wrong or, oh, this could be like more clear. Right. And and I would say for me, both covers and back covers, because I think they've, I've been lucky. Um, So far, every book, every cozy mystery I've done, like all my feedback's been incorporated, but I've also had very specific feedback about those. Nothing that's like a huge, big change. Um, and when you sign a contract, you know, a series contract, you have usually two or three books on the series. Um, do you think about series, you know, series arcs for that contract? So do you have something that, you know, um, cause you don't know usually whether or not you're going to be renewed until you've turned in that third book and then you're waiting for the contract. So you want to, um arc something but you also need to leave some things open and you know it's 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 quite the conundrum as you're as you're the business side of writing is a lot of times why cozy series people break up <laughs> in the fourth book because you know they wanted to leave the contract happily ever after and then they realize okay we got three more books so let's break them up so it's more interesting do you have series arcs or or different things that you think about um, has that evolved over time as you've been writing? You know, when I when my very first draft of the Ground Rules series, I thought I was going to have a, like a series arc that I ended up like scrapping in entirety. And so it's interesting because and the, the the first cozy series I wrote, it had the same thing. I had like a, an idea for like a very specific multi book arc, and I completely changed it. And so now the there's a bit of an arc with the Ground Rules books, but it's pretty gentle. It's no. There's no like bigger or greater mystery. It has a lot of it is to do with her personal life, but it's yeah. very, it's a very gentle arc. Um, and I'm kind of being a little bit vague, but it's a fun arc, but it's, it's, it's not, it, there's, it's, it's pretty like low drama, which also makes it, I think it makes it fun. Well, you also leave it open for the character to have growth and to, you know, with family dynamics and other things to sort of, um, she's changing as well and that's part of you know that's part of the fun of reading that series is is seeing how she's coping with with her life as it's evolving and and i think that's realistic because when you're you know she's about 27 in the first book and she has a lot of things figured out but there's a you know most people there's a lot of change between you know 25 and 40 and so i mean if i was going to say if there's an arc it is actually just is it is that change of going from like having an idea to actually executing it. And then everything that happens, balancing life along the way. Yeah. And, and, and coping with that. Um, So let's talk about writing advice. You know, what's the best piece of writing advice you've ever gotten or that you give, you know, what's your favorite piece of writing advice to give folks? My favorite piece of advice to give people give is, if you read a book you don't like, take the time to figure out why, right? Because like there are, you'll, you know, I have like friends, they'll rave about a book and 
if I say I pick it up and it's not for me, I mean, you can, as a reader, it's fine to just like put that down and be like, it's not for me and move on. But I think as a writer, it can be really valuable to read something and figure out like, why does it not work specifically for you? Right. Kind of look at it with like kind of an editorial hat. I mean, I do the same things to books that you love, but to mm-hmm. be like, why specifically? Cause I was, you know, I might see a book that it, it's not for me, but I see why people love it. And I find that activity really interesting, you know, and I think it also helps when you, when your books are coming out, like to also that knowledge that like, not everyone's going to love my books and that's going to be fine because people have such different taste. Right. And as far as the best advice that I got, and I'm, I'm trying to see if I, hopefully I can summarize this. Um, it was earliest in my career. I had a review with an editor who actually really liked, it was a piece. He said, it's not what he would have picked up for his publisher. It was actually a young adult that had a science fiction edge to it, but he gave me some of the best feedback I've ever gotten. And one thing that he talked about was, showing and telling on a greater level where he made a point that like I did a great job like I you know I, I, I didn't show on the page I, mean, I didn't tell on the page right mm-hmm. but to think about it on a greater scene level because a lot of times the best books a scene it's also showing you something that the characters aren't seeing right and so he said so think about on your scene on your scene level like what are you showing us about the character's world in addition to like, what are you actually showing us like in the interactions on the page? And he and he was great because he gave me an example in the manuscript of where I was showing on a greater level. And then where I was maybe a little bit too on the nose with some of the world building where it could be, could do where what I was writing could do more work. With Just words. a reminder to folks, because I'm going to ask you more about this because I find that interesting. Um, a scene is a contained unit of activity or, you know, um, or how how uh, everything, the people, the action, and everything else is contained. So if somebody else comes in, it's a second scene. Um, co- chapters um, contain many scenes. Some people write in chapters. Some people write in scenes. Do you write in chapters or do you write in scenes? I tend to write in scenes, but I see them fitting within a chapter. Because, you know, every scene should have its own mini arc. Yeah. There is something that's happening. There should be... You know, your character should always be wanting something and it might be, you know, a subplot in, an, in, a, in a scene. It might be related to like your main plot, but there should always be something they'd want. And there should always be usually some level of pushback. I mean, you can also have like a short, sweet scene if you just want to break the tension of like everything's going terrible, but at least like their have their love life is going fine right now or something like that. Or, you know, maybe you have that's maybe have the moment where the cat does something funny because it just gives a, it gives the reader a little bit of a break, so then gives them a breath, so they're ready for the tension to ramp up in the next scene. Um, but for me, yeah, I, I write, I always write in scenes, but I see how they fit within the bigger story, usually within chapters, because the chapter should also have its own arc, and those scenes should fit together in some way that makes makes sense within this realm of the story. And sometimes you could break a scene in the middle for a cliffhanger for a chapter if that's how how you roll. Um, uh, and I agree uh, that you, what a great definition you just gave of scenes. But even the short cat scenes usually will have something that is propelling the story forward. I mean, that's, you know, this is interesting advice that I've gotten uh, is, you know, you don't want to have a scene. You don't want to include anything that people are going to skip to get to the story. So filler scenes are, are part of it. And those subplots are so important in um in writing a novel length book 
and having characters who support the subplot. And usually they all come together in some way at the end. Um, but do you have fun with those subplots and sort of arcing and bringing characters in and building that community that can support those subplots? Yeah, well, I think, um, especially I think in, in the cozy mystery world, I think a lot of those subplots are actually what people keep people coming back to them to the, the novels because yeah. they come because they they they, they wanted to solve the main puzzle, but with the best cozy mystery series, you feel like you're coming and checking in with friends, and usually those kind of friend moments are the subplots. They're the, the fun things that are happening in their life or the things that they're accomplishing away from just solving the mystery. And when so those when those intertwine really well, I think those are like the best mysteries. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and having that um cast of characters who you can draw on and having their they can have conversations or stories that go two or three books. Like somebody can meet somebody, get married, you know, there can be lots of activity within those. But usually they intertwine with the mystery itself as well. And in, in the best world, like the subplots, well, a lot of times like unintentionally shed light on the mystery, Yeah, you know, because cozies are very much based in pe- people's interactions, you know, like the kind of the Miss Marple of, she was like, oh yeah, that, that reminds me of this person I met 30 years ago because people follow patterns. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of, and some of the best, the, the, the subplots will be completely different, but they make some connections, like link up in the main character's head and they get what actually happened and they can solve the mystery. Um, do you have fun developing those those um, puzzles for folks? And, and, I do. And working on tricking people? I do. I, and for me, I try to make sure the mystery always feels very organic, that the reasons like that, that mystery, there's a reason why it happened at that point in time in that particular world. And so I probably focus on that first and then figure out like how can I make this very like confusing but fair and then when you find out why it's like it's, hopefully it feels like oh there were all of the clues all along but I just didn't focus on them right I um so let's get back to writing advice because we could talk about scenes and writing and we'll, we'll talk about that some more but um what's the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten or that you've heard other people got i think the worst advice and I'll, I'll generalize it but it's telling you that you have any writer they have to do something one specific way i heard um the now retired um publisher penguin putnam and he said the answer to every question in publishing is maybe it depends and i think about that right because there's almost rarely like a specific answer like does a book work you know um there are people that give advice to write every day and maybe that is really good advice for one person but it doesn't necessarily work for everyone else right, right? and maybe there's someone and they're like i write 3 days a week i have a schedule i sit down that's when i always write well maybe that wouldn't work for someone that's going to be more effective writing every day and so i think whenever anyone says an absolute this is the way you have to do it i think that's almost always bad advice you know i think the best advice is this is what works for me and then take from it what's going to help you and ignore the rest. Yeah. Yes. I think take from it what works for you and ignore the rest. Um, and, you know, as far as some of those, you have to do this every day. You also um, frequently writers have to balance other aspects of their lives with their writing and make space for it. But, you know, with with family or with jobs or with with, you know, 
extended family obligations or caregiving, or, or there's a lot of factors in, in lives. Um, how do you work on balancing your whole life and your writing as well? Someone, and this wasn't specific about writing, it's about something else, but she talked about, it was a friend, and figure out what you value by actually taking a moment and write down how you spend your day, right? And I mean, it's obvious, like, if you have kids, I mean, you're going to have to feed them. I mean, that's a given. And there are things that you're going to have to do. And if you look up um, Nora Ephron's, like, ball analogy, I think that works really well when it comes to families of some of those balls you're juggling are glass and some are plastic, and you figure out what are the balls you can drop because you have like a deadline and like maybe wacky hair day is not going to be important, but a doctor's appointment, you know, is going to be your feeding your kids. Um, and so I like the idea of like sit down and write, like, how do you actually spend your time to show you also what you value? And my friend said, because, you know, she had some things she wanted to accomplish and she wasn't, she was like, maybe if I watch less reality TV show. And which isn't to say that watching is bad because you might, she needs a mental break, but she realized Mm -hmm. that she was spending a lot of time doing things that weren't related to the goals she wanted to achieve. And so I think about that, you know, like I like to, I like, I like to knit, but if I sat down and knit every day for eight hours, I probably wouldn't be writing. And is that what I really want to achieve in the greater scheme of things? You know, and that, I think that's an interesting question for everyone, but it's kind of sitting down and figuring out what are, what do I have to do? What do I want to do? What like can't be changed, but what can I push aside for now? Because it's not going to m- matter at least in the long, in the long run. Right. So using like Nora's, Nora's example, that might be, you know, they're the things you have to do for your kids, but maybe there are things that you can push off, you know, for a few months, you know, and, or, you know, or find a way for someone else to handle it for you, I guess would be the other part. Yeah. That's a, um, that's terrific advice. And I also, uh, for many of us, that's, uh, hard to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, it's a reckoning, right? It's like, oh, maybe if I played less time playing Candy Crush on my phone, I could actually write a little bit more, um, you know, but we also need breaks. So knitting can be part of plotting. I mean, that could be, you know, when you're sort Mm -hmm. of, you know, focusing on an activity, but leaving your imagination free to think about other things. Right. And and no one's, you know, none of us are machines. So we have to take that moment, you know, find ways that help us distress. And as you, you know, and as you said, like, maybe like you're knitting, like you're going for a walk, your, your brain is still working. And sometimes those are the most creative times, you know, where all of a sudden you'll come, you, you won't even realize that you'd kind of been working on a problem and you get the, like the answer to a plot question, doing something completely yeah. random. And it's fun. Yeah, I know. I have a lot of friends who take plot walks, who when they're stuck on a book, they just, you know, put on their coat and their shoes and go out and take a walk because and bring, you know, an index card or something with them just in case something brilliant happens. But it's also fresh air, exercise, doing something else, getting out of my space and maybe giving my imagination some room to to come back and help me, um, you know, taking care of your physical being is also uh, part of writing, which I think we neglect sometimes. Yeah. Um, so can you talk about, you know, any, um, before you were published, what did you think it would look like? I think I was, I was probably a little lucky in that I had met enough people that had already published books that I knew that there's no like one way that it was going to look. 
right? Like I definitely knew I was not going to be like sent on tour with like limousines and like Crystal, which of course everyone dreams that, you know, that would be them. Um, I did have like, I think I was lucky. I had a pretty grounded view of what was going to happen, you know, and, and especially with having books coming out in the pandemic, I definitely gave up any sense of like what should happen. So, I mean, I feel very lucky. I mean, and I, and I, I think ultimately I've met the, the goal that I had, which was selling more books down the road of not just doing like one book and being done. Mm-hmm. And one thing that, one thing that I've actually, that I have found fun is writing down, like I know someone, she, she wrote out this really cool bucket writer bucket list. It's like everything she wanted to have happened, but I've kind of found it almost more fun to make a list of like, what were the unexpected things that happened that were really fun. Like seeing my book in like a print um, ad in one of the major trade reviews magazines. I'm like, okay, I did not expect that. That was really cool. Yeah. Um, seeing my book in Target, I never would have thought that was something that would happen. And it was pretty awesome. You know, walking yeah. into a bookstore I had like never been in before and like finding my book. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, and I, I think you've talked about the pandemic a couple of times and there are definitely folks who, um, especially as you said, if they launched early in the pandemic, nobody knew how to handle it. Um, and it's, it's the pandemic changed book marketing in a lot of ways for, for future. I mean, now online events are actually an opportunity to talk to people from different parts of the country or to, to be on different um, Zoom events. And they're still happening. In-person events are happening as well. But um, it did change how it all works and we're still reckoning with what those changes are which I think is also something there's somebody could have given you advice 10 years ago or five years ago and it's not going to be true now because the world has changed that's hard to that's hard to stay nimble without all of those changes that's what it's hard but I mean it's also opportunities so I think it's important we just we keep an eye you know what's what's happening and like so there's been a lot of changes at Barnes and Noble where it used to be you know, just a few years ago that publishers paid for placement in Barnes and Noble. So end caps, tables up, you know, up front were all paid placement. And now those are decisions that are left up to the stores. And so that does give you though, the opportunity to create personal, a stronger personal relationship with your local Barnes and Nobles. But then at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean that the Barnes and Noble that's three States away will know that you exist. So it is a weird, weird environment. But I think the one thing that's nice, I think we 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 have probably in a way more room for personal relationships, with, especially with some of the chains than we did a decade ago. But then, yeah, everyone in publishing is trying to figure out like how to handle Barnes and Noble no longer doing played placement. Yeah, pretty fascinating. It is fascinating, and also um, your books are in trade, um, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the other change that's happening is. Um, uh, they're not carrying as many mass market paperbacks um, as they used to. I mean, Barnes and Noble used to have a wall, you know, a whole aisle of cozies, and now it's maybe a shelf. Um, and you know, they're, they're the whole mass market paperback uh, world is being upended right now as well. What's interesting? So, with some of the Barnes and Nobles I've been in recently, they've had there's some pretty great cozy sections, but sometimes they separate mass market from uh like the trade paperbacks which is really weird it took me a long time to find my own book because the trade section was actually much smaller 
But I think the one thing that's fascinating too is actually on the children's lit side, Barnes & Noble is going away from like hardback for like middle grade. And those are books the target audience is probably like eight to 12, eight to 13. And they like only want paperback and publishers had been doing hardback. And then it's interesting because I mean, now with Cozy Mysteries being coming in like multiple formats, I think some bookstores aren't sure where to put them. And then yeah. it does it does get like really, it does get very fascinating. Although one thing that I felt reassuring is that it seems to me I'm seeing more and more cozy like sections in stores where I think that categories making a, has made a, a comeback, which is really lovely to see. Yeah. Yeah. Very heartening. I think that I, you know, cozies are, are an interesting, um, uh, subgenre of traditionals and, you know, don't always get the, uh, for lack of a better word, respect that they deserve within the publishing world because they sell very well <laughs> um, and and continue to sell very well. They do well by publishers. So um, I think, you know, we can't forget that. Right. Yeah. We can't forget that readers love them. And and the, a lot of the readers of Cozy's are people that read a lot. So they're not just picking up one like Cozy Mystery a year. They're picking up like two a week, you know, yeah. and those are amazing readers. Right. Those are I mean, it's it's heartwarming. It's 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 amazing when I see like how much some of the cozy fans read and like how many series they love and how enthusiastically they talk about what they read. Yes. And it's it's really pretty amazing. And cozy readers also um, read across genres. I mean, it's not like they definitely don't. Some do. They only read cozies, but they also read you know, historicals and thrillers and, and different books, depending on. So they are voracious readers, but you're exactly right. They are, you know, one or two books a week. I mean, you can't, you know, more power to them. I mean, that's a um, an amazing thing. But also as a reader, you know, and we're both readers as well. You have to be a reader in order to be a writer. Um, you know, I, I go through periods where I'm reading a couple of books a week easily, just sort of figuring stuff out. Um, what, uh, so let's talk about community. You talked a, a couple of times and used some great phrases, um, you know, about the community that you've built within your, within, in Oregon, um, to help support your writing and how challenging that was during the pandemic to not be able to be part of the community. Uh, I think as writers, uh, we early on, you sort of think, well, it's a solo activity. But in fact, you need community to support you and to encourage you and to, you know, for so many reasons. Um, talk to me about what community has meant to you in your writing. Well, I think, I mean, as a writer, finding other writers to be friends with, it can help so much. Um, you know, for me, like with when I had my first contract or like when my first book came out and then it's navigating like what happened next or like if you write a manuscript and like your agent doesn't like it it's nice having friends who have been in the same situation like when my friend she's like oh yeah she's her and her agent they've sold at least seven books together but she's like there's a book or two her agent hated and and nothing ever happened with those and so it wasn't like it's you know it's kind of it's normal and so getting that sense of like what's normal in relationships versus like what's weird you know mm -hmm. um and and also you I mean because I remember I was in the 2017 debut group for young adult writers. And one thing people were doing that was really amazing was, so Kirkus is one of the major trade reviews. They are known for being frequently being very snarky. 
yeah. people were taking their snarky Kirkus reviews and turning them into inspirational posters. And <laughs> it was the best thing I've ever seen. And it was just a way to deal with the, you know, the frustration. And, and I will say, I mean, frequently, Kirkus usually has a point. I've, I've seen books I've loved, they've panned. I've seen books that I didn't like that they wrote really good reviews of. But I've also read a lot where I'm like, I see where they came from with that, mm-hmm. even though I would have been nicer about it. But it was just, it was a really fun way to deal with the frustration of, you know, getting like a snarky review. And that's something I wouldn't have ever thought about until I, you know, saw people doing it. You know, and, and that sense of commiseration, it's really important. Um, and it, for me, like in person, like I love um, Shut Up and Write. They're a national nonprofit. I go twice a week to um, Shut Up and Write sessions, which is exactly what it sounds like. You go to almost always a coffee shop, um, one of my local ones, a library, you go and you sit down and you write for an hour without talking. And those are two of my like most productive hours of the week. Um, and I'm lucky that like, in person, I have like Willamette writers. When I was early career, I went to some of like their meetings, um, heard some really great people talk about different things related to publishing. They have a good conference every year. My local Sisters in Crime chapter is actually virtual and we are continuing to be virtual. It was founded during the pandemic. And that's been fun because it is a way to meet with people around the region that aren't like just within Portland. Mm-hmm. But no, I would say for writers, like finding, even if they write different categories from you, finding local people that you can get coffee with and just, you know, vent or chat with is super useful. And then also, you know, being able to get genre specific, like online groups is also pretty amazing if, if you feel limited where you are locally. Yeah. It makes all the difference, doesn't it? Yeah. And going to conferences, if you can, I mean, it's not a small um, expense, but it can make a big difference as well. Seeing people face to face so that you can have, as you would with local friends, have the real conversations about (laughs) contracts or frustration. I mean, we all, the Instagram world, it looks like everyone's great and books are coming out and stuff. But, you know, when you sit at a conference grabbing a glass of wine or a cup of coffee, um, that's when the, oh, you know, they passed. My agent didn't like my book. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. what do I do? Conversations, which is, it, it, you know, a valid conversation and one that is too frequently, I think, only held face to face. And and we need to be more honest about those conversations. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so uh what's next for you? Well, uh, the fourth ground rules mystery, Death Unfiltered, comes out on March twenty-sixth <laughs> of twenty twenty-four. So it's considered an April title from Kensington, and that is what's literally next. Um, I also in Portland uh, co-organized the like Friends of Ministries lecture series and we are back in person. And so I actually have three people that um, all worked within the criminal justice field speaking and that, that are also writers speaking next week. And that is a series of something like there's five sessions a year that I am working on getting all the marketing put together for. Wow. So that's a lot. The, if you're in the Portland area, look up Friends of Mystery. It's, it's always free. All right. I'll put that in the show notes. So I, I've been taking notes as we've been having this conversation. So I'm going to add things to the show notes for all of you. Um, Emmeline, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, and what a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me. And I, I hope what I had to say is helpful for the listeners. Oh, I'm sure it's going to be. Thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. 
We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.